hundred years ago or so, uh, in the days when the Wild West was still not quite tamed, and still fairly wild, a couple of brothers in Montana found themselves living in extreme poverty. And without any real um, business opportunities and without any real education to speak of, they did what so many people do in those situations. They resorted to a life of crime. And their criminal plan was really fairly simple. They were going to give themselves to the crime of sheep rustling, stealing sheep. And it seemed to be really straightforward. Like, how much fight could a sheep put up anyway? And so they thought about it for a while and talked it over amongst themselves. And then they found the perfect target. They found a wealthy rancher who had so much acreage that there was no way he could ever keep watch over all of it. And he had so many sheep that there was no way he would ever know if one or two or a few more went missing. And so they scouted everything out. They began to formulate their plan. And on a certain day, they acted to steal the sheep. But as you can imagine, they were kind of hapless criminals and were caught by the rancher pretty much immediately and turned over to the local sheriff. They went to trial, were found guilty right away, and it came time for their sentencing. And the judge decided to have leniency. He felt bad for these two poor boys and determined that they would not be hanged, as everybody would expect. And they would not even be sent to jail to work on the chain gang or whatever. But he came up with a unique and a novel way to punish them for stealing sheep. He had the local blacksmith fashion a brand with the letters S. T at the end of the brand. And he had the boys branded right on the forehead with the letters S-T. So that everywhere they went for the rest of their lives, the first thing that would ever be seen about them is that they were sheep thieves. They could not be trusted. They did not need to be respected. They needed to be watched because they were sheep thieves. I wonder what you think about that punishment when you hear that story. I know that our Constitution forbids cruel and unusual punishment. And I'm certainly not in favor of cruel punishment, but sometimes I am kind of in favor of unusual punishment, and that's a little unusual. But I think it might be effective. And maybe you disagree, and that's okay if you do, but let me ask it to you this way. Have you ever been robbed? Have you ever been mugged? Have you ever walked out of your house in the morning to get in your car and find that in the middle of the night your windows had been broken and somebody had stolen something out of your car? To put it in modern terms, have you ever had an enterprising hacker in another part of the world get into your bank account and steal your identity? You ever had that happen? If you've ever been robbed, if you've ever had somebody steal from you, well, it's not hard to hate a thief, is it? It's not hard to harbor ill feelings towards somebody who takes all their time and their energy and effort and, and instead of being productive, they're destructive and they rip other people off. And I don't think we would be surprised to find that same principle laid out here in the law of God with the simple commandment, thou shalt not steal. This commandment's not only written on the law of God, but it's written in our hearts, right? We hate 
somebody who cheats us, who robs us, who rips us off. We hate a thief. But as we consider this simple command before us in the Ten Commandments today, Thou shalt not steal. Like so many other of the commandments, it goes deeper than we might think. And it confronts us with our own sinful hearts in ways we may not immediately imagine. And it also points us of our need for a gracious God who will never cheat us, who will never rob us, and who will never steal from us. So let's read the Ten Commandments together. You can find them in Exodus chapter number 20. Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse number 1. Exodus chapter 20 and verse number 1. And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of your fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord abideth forever. Amen. When the book of Exodus begins, the people of Israel find themselves living in slavery. In fact, in all, they live in slavery for 400 years. Four centuries. That's longer than our nation has even existed as a country. It's hard for us historically to wrap our minds around an expanse of time of 400 years. But for 400 years, the people of God found themselves living as a stolen people. Their future was stolen from them because they had no right to determine who they would be, where they would go, or where they would live. Their labor was stolen from them. Because they would go work every day and then the profits that they would earn or anything that they produced belonged to somebody else. Obviously their freedom was stolen from them as their taskmasters and their overlords determined every decision that they would make on their behalf. Their children were stolen from them. Exodus chapter number 1 shows us how the Pharaoh with a stroke of his pen issued an edict that all of the baby boys born to the Hebrews would be slaughtered. Their religion was stolen from them. 
They had no right to go and worship their God in freedom. They were a stolen people. And the miracle of the book of the Exodus is that the God of heaven, the God of Genesis, the God of all creation, the God who speaks and universes fly into being, that God begins to meddle around in the affairs of these slaves. The miracle is that when God steps in, He does not step in on behalf of the wealthy and the powerful. He does not step in on behalf of the people who might have something to offer him. God begins to step in and act on behalf of slaves who are nobodies and who have nothing. And God flexes his arm of power on behalf of the Israelites and delivers them out of that bondage, showing his love towards them. And over time, he brings them to a place called Mount Sinai in the wilderness. And in Exodus chapter number 19... God brings the people of Israel together and He constitutes them as a new nation. They're not just a ragtag group of slaves anymore, but they are formerly the people of God. And in Exodus chapter 20, God gives them the law, the Ten Commandments, to show them what it will mean to live as His people. What will it mean for them to live as the people of God who are going to honor the God who rescued them and who are going to show the goodness and justice of their God in their life as His people? And it's not really surprising then, given that background, that one of the most important commands, one of the top ten, is thou shalt not steal. These are people who had had their lives stolen from them. They'd had their property taken from them. They knew what it meant to be ripped off. They knew what it meant to be cheated. They knew what it meant to be mugged, not by a gun in the face, but by a powerful empire that they could not escape. They knew what it meant to be, to be a stolen people. And so right here enshrined in the law is this commandment that they were not allowed to steal. That they valued other people's possessions. They would not take other people's property. They cared for other people's lives because their God had cared for them. Thou shalt not steal. There's probably no verse in the Bible that sounds more like a verse in the Bible than thou shalt not steal. There's probably no verse in the Bible that is less controversial than the commandment, thou shalt not steal. Christians, non-Christians, I mean, everybody would agree with that, right? There's no verse in the Bible, frankly, that is less in need of interpretation and less in need of a sermon than this verse. Don't steal. Like, what did you want me to preach about from this passage of Scripture? Like, don't steal. That's what the Word says. It's not hard to understand. It's, there's nothing here to disagree about. We all, we all would say, that's right. People should not steal, especially if they want to steal from me. But as I think about this passage of Scripture, I want to confront us with three questions that I think are helpful to truly understand what it means. The first question is this. What is the big problem here? What is the big problem here? Thou shalt not steal. Well, obviously the problem is stealing. So again, don't steal. Don't go to the gas station and fill up your tank and drive off without paying for it. I mean, y'all should have said amen to that. Like that was. <laughs> don't go to the grocery store and buy or, or take a pound of ground beef and stick it in your coat and leave without giving the money to the cashier. Thank you, brother. Don't steal. <laughs> Don't go to the mechanic and have him fix your transmission and then refuse to pay your bill. Yes, sir. 
Thou shalt not steal. It's simple and it's direct. It's four simple words in English, but it's actually only two words in Hebrew, which will be translated to no stealing. Thou shalt not steal. But the word for steal is a little bit more than just a transaction. It's about more than just not paying at the store or sneaking into somebody's house. The truth you don't want to hear is, there's a lot of ways we can steal. There's a whole lot of ways that we can steal. In fact, our world, as Martin Luther said, is a great stable full of thieves. Martin Luther went on to write one time... He said that if you wanted to hang every thief, he said there's not enough rope in the world to do it. And he said in the end, we would all be swinging by our own belts. Why is that? Well, think about it with me. Employers can rip off their employees by not paying them a fair wage. Expecting them to work and not compensating them the way that they ought to compensate them for the work that they do. That was easy. This is not going to be easy. Employees can steal from their employers by on the clock. Instead of putting in an honest and a good day's work, just doom-scrolling TikTok videos where cats playing the piano. Maybe we need to have an altar call now. (laughs) Marketing companies can rob from potential customers by lying about their products, making promises they never intend to deliver. Businesses can can rob from their customers by overcharging for things that aren't worth what they pay. Obviously, customers can steal from business by not paying what they owe. We can steal from people that work on our behalf and we pay them less than what they actually deserve. The government can steal from their citizens through unjust tax laws. That punish profitability. I figured that would go well. That punish (laughs) profitability. But citizens can steal from their government by not paying their taxes as the Bible commands us to do. There are infinite ways for us to steal, for us to look for ways to grasp and to claw and to scratch and to take what really belongs to somebody else and to keep it for ourselves. And then to justify it as if we deserve it, as if we've earned it, as if, you know, they're never going to miss it. The Bible even says it's possible for us to rob God. Malachi chapter 3, the prophet Malachi confronted the people of Israel about this. And the Lord says to them, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you children of Jacob are not consumed. What he's saying is it's because I don't change in my love and commitment to you that I don't destroy you. It's not because we're consistent. It's because he's consistent. He says, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord. But you say, how shall we return? How are we, where did this distance between us and God come from? The Lord asks, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, well, how have we robbed you? How can you rob God? Everything belongs to Him, right? You can rob God in your tithes and contributions. You can rob somebody by taking from them what you didn't earn. But you can also rob somebody by not giving them what they deserve. And what God is saying here, particularly about giving and tithing, is that God has given us 100% of everything that is ours. He's given us our income, our capacity to work. He has provided graciously for us. 
And in worship and in trust in Him, we give back to Him. But if you take this principle and you broaden it beyond tithes and offerings, the fact of the matter is that you are a creature living in a world that you did not make. A world that God provided. You're breathing air that is not yours. Living under a sun that you did not hang in space. And yet God who made us for Himself presides over a world full of crooks who do not live for His glory. They live for our own glory. Live for ourselves. Robbing Him of what is His due. Robbing Him of praise and robbing Him of worship. We're all thieves. We're all guilty. As far as I know in my life, I've never taken from a store on purpose. You know, we all sometimes get home and realize, hey man, they gave us, you know, an extra can of soup that we didn't pay for, whatever. That happens. But I've never been tempted to be much of a thief. I've I've realized long ago that I'm never going to have a whole lot, but I'm going to have enough to get by and order a pizza every now and then. So I'm good. (laughs) Don't worry. I've got plenty of other junk, but this just ain't my junk. Probably not your junk either. But, truthfully, at the deepest level, all of us have lived dishonoring God, but not giving Him what He deserves. And frankly, if we're willing to dishonor Him, we're willing to deceive others and take from them what we didn't earn. So what's the big problem here? Well, obviously stealing in any capacity. But why does it matter? Think about this. Why does it matter? Because it's easy for us to justify thievery. It's easy for us to do it. It's easy for us to say, well, it's just a big corporation. I mean, Target has insurance. They've got it figured in to the bottom line that they're going to lose a certain percentage anyway. Who does it hurt? Or so-and-so didn't deserve it, but I did. Or I, I just really, really wanted it, so I reached out and took it. My boss doesn't pay me fairly anyway, and so I'm not going to put in a good eight hours tomorrow. It's easy to justify that. Why does it matter? Why does God give this command about stealing? Well, here's why it matters. Because God cares about people. And it's not that God is a materialist or that God wants you to be a materialist. God certainly even would say in the New Testament that covetousness is idolatry. And if you really, really like this sermon, come back in two weeks because I'm going to preach to you about covetousness. God certainly would never allow us to reduce our lives to the stuff that we own. Because when we reduce our lives to the stuff that we own, we're being reduced to the stuff that owns us. God never wants us to reduce our lives to stuff. But our stuff is very much, in many ways, the fruit of our lives. I've got stuff that I own because I worked, because I have earned income, and because I've used that income to buy groceries, to feed my family, to have a house for them to live in, to buy other things to keep us happy and to keep us healthy. And God cares about that. God cares about it so much that He says, you don't have the right to go and take from anybody else. You don't have the right to go and steal what doesn't belong to you or to not pay what somebody else owes. You don't have the right to do that because God cares about the people you would steal from. And I think we all know that. I think we all sense that. And the reason we all sense that is because we hate it when somebody rips us off, don't we? 
Y'all are never going to believe this, but it's absolutely true. The Lord knew I was preaching this sermon this morning. What do you think happened to my debit card this week? Somebody bought a bunch of junk in California from companies I've never heard of and a place I couldn't find on the map because somehow they got my debit card and decided that they would take the money that we worked for. And I don't know how you feel about that. You may be thinking, well, Brother Jesse, the Lord says to forgive. Yeah, but you ain't preaching to me. I'm preaching to you. <laughs> and when I, went, when I went to the bank, you know, you've got to call them and dispute the transactions. And then you've got to cancel your card. And I had to go to the bank to get another card. And I was just talking to the teller at the bank. And she's like, oh, you know, we're so sorry this happened. And I said, well, I know it's not your fault. I was a little bit suspicious when she said that. I said, no, it's not, no, it's not your fault. Uh, and I said, I know nothing's going to happen. We'll, we'll get the money back. But nobody's going to be punished for it. I know, I know that. I've had it happen before. I know that. And I said, I know you're never going to find out who did it. And I said, it's a good thing for them. I'm not going to find out who did it. And you feel the same way, right? If you get ripped off. In fact, let me just tell you this. If you ever meet somebody, maybe an atheist or an agnostic or somebody who doesn't think about the world from a biblical worldview, they may be quick to tell you, you know, there are no universal moral truths. There are no ethical standards. There is no God to tell us how to order our lives, and so no one has the right to tell people at all times and all places how they ought to live. You know what you do to that person? Steal their wallet. <laughs> and then when they punch you in the face, you won. Because you've proven there's something in them that understands the difference between right and wrong, and that it is wrong to take what belongs to other people. We know that. It's written in our hearts God has written it across our consciences that it is wrong to take from other people. That's why we are so quick to judge people who rip us off. But again, we're all guilty of what we might condemn others for. The Apostle Paul confronts us with that in Romans chapter number 2. He confronts the, the very self-righteous, very religious Jews who believe these commandments in Exodus 20. It was wrong to steal. But he says to them, he says, you who abhor idols, do you not rob temples? You preach against stealing, do you not steal? He says, you're guilty of the same thing that you judge. We might think, well, no, I'm not. I don't steal people's debit cards. I hope you don't. But at its heart, stealing is not just about transactions that aren't paid. But stealing is about a failure to believe that God is God. Thievery, robbery, is a theological crisis that actually gets into our very nature as human beings. In two ways. Let me explain this to you. First of all, if I steal from somebody else, then I'm failing to trust God's providence. I'm saying God is not going to provide, God is not going to take care of me, or I'm believing, hey, I live in a dog-eat-dog -dog world, and there's only one way for me to get ahead. I've got to look out for me because nobody else will. 
I've got to take care of me. I've got to put me first because everybody else will put me last. And I've got to claw and I've got to reach and I've got to take and I've got to consume and I've got to conserve and I've got to collect and I've got to look out for me. And if that's the way we live our lives, we are failing to believe that our God is a good Father who says that He will provide for His children. But believer, I want you to hear me today when I tell you that God is your Heavenly Father. And He has said that He will take care of everything that you need according to His riches in glory. God has never said that your life comes down to your riches. Thank God. He says, because some of your riches might be like mine. They might be out in California now somewhere. God has never said that my life is a matter of my wealth. But my life is determined by His wealth. And His generosity towards me. He says in the Sermon on the Mount, Our Heavenly Father knows the things we have need of even before we ask. My goodness, y'all, you can't even spell the word providence without the word provide. God is going to take care of His children, and He will make sure that they have everything that they ever need. Now, He may know that we can't have everything that we want. We've all lived long enough to know that God is not going to give us everything that we want. But often, in not giving us what we want, God is giving us exactly what we need. Because when we don't have what we want, then we learn patience. We learn trust. We learn to wait. And God often keeps us from having what we want so that we can have what we really need. God will give you every single thing that you need. He will provide for you. So that even if you need to go hungry, God will be gracious to give you what you really need. I want you to know today, if you're here this morning, and I I wouldn't think you're probably being tempted to steal. But you might be tempted to doubt. And you might be tempted to worry. And you might be tempted to fear. Will God take care of me? I want you to know that our God has promised He will provide for you. And as a heavenly Father, our God is governing every solar system in this universe. Every planet that is spinning in every galaxy that exists and every single atom that is spinning inside of every organism, God is making sure all of that is spinning towards your good. He will take care of you. But when we steal, we're not just sinning against God's providence, but we're also sinning against God's goodness. When you take what doesn't belong to you, or you don't give what is owed to someone else, what you're doing in a very, very visible way, you are saying, God is not good. Because He's not good, He's holding out from me what I deserve. He's keeping from me what I've earned. He's not offering me the things that ought to be mine because He's not good. And y'all, I want you to know, we've all believed that. We've all believed it since Adam and Eve believed it in the Garden of Eden. That God is somehow stingy. That God is somehow cold towards us. That God is somehow cruel towards us. And God really doesn't want us to have anything good. That's the central lie underneath all of our human nature and underneath all of our sin that maybe God is not good and therefore God should not be trusted and obeyed. But is that the God you know from the Bible? Or does the God you know from the Bible say that He loved this world so much that He gave the best that He had so that you and I could have the best God has to offer? Does the Bible say to you that our God is generous 
And our God is gracious. And our God gives us much, much more than we ever deserve. When we steal, we are believing that God is not good. And even if you've never so much as stolen a pack of big league chew from the shell station, <laughs> you are guilty of living as if God does not provide. You are guilty of living as if not as God is not good. You are guilty of embracing the same deceptions that every thief believes deep down inside. So the third question I would ask today is what now? Now what? If the law of God really understood at the heart level makes us to be a people who are condemned by the very sins that we judge, if we are condemned by our own judgment, what do we do? With the law of God which judges us. Y'all, this is where there's very, very good news. The very, very good news is that the God who has promised to provide for us and the God who is good to us became a man who lived in this world. And that man who lived in this world never one time doubted God's providence. He never one time doubted God's goodness. But the Lord Jesus gave Himself over fully to His heavenly Father. The Bible says He thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but took upon Himself the form of a servant and became obedient to death, even the death of a cross. Jesus never ripped off anybody. And He never lived as if God was ripping Him off. But He lived in joyful confidence and was able in that joyful confidence in God to live the life that you have never lived and will never live. But when Jesus came into this world, if you think about the story of Jesus' life and who He really was from the way the Bible tells the story, Jesus was constantly being robbed. He was constantly being cheated. He was constantly being ripped off. He goes around doing miracles, showing His power and His compassion and His love. And instead of being repaid with trust and obedience, Jesus is repaid with distrust, and skepticism, and unbelief. Jesus, the Bible says, is the God who spoke everything into existence. And God, as a man living in His own world, says this, The foxes have holes. The, son of man, the, the, the birds of the air have nests to rest in. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. The God who made everything says, I don't even have a corner in my world to sleep in. He's robbed of His dignity. As He's taken before a mockery of a trial... Falsely accused and condemned. He's robbed of community as all of his best friends abandon him. He's robbed of his very life as he's crucified in our place. And even as he dies, the Bible says that a handful of Roman soldiers are at the foot of his cross. And in his dying moments, what are they doing? They're taking his last possessions and they're gambling over them. Stealing from Jesus as he dies. Jesus lived the one life that never stole, but was constantly being stolen from. And yet, miraculously, in His grace, where did Jesus spend His last moments? Where did the God of heaven, living in this world as the Lord Jesus, who did He waste His last words on? The Bible says in Luke chapter number 23, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal, the other thief, rebuked him, 
saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? We indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. In his last moments when Jesus was crucified, even though he was alone, abandoned by God and abandoned by men, there were two men with him. And who were those men? They weren't preachers. They weren't deacons. They weren't WMU directors or Sunday school leaders. They were thieves. Men who had been given over to a life of crime, who had cheated others, who had disrupted their community, probably because they were crucified men whose crimes had gotten out of hand and they had taken lives as they had tried to take people's poverty, take, take people's property. That is where Jesus spent his last moments. And the Bible says that when one of those thieves looked at him in faith, and said through the miracle of the work of the Spirit of God inside of him, that crucified man is my king. He says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Somehow he understood that that man with that crown of thorns was a king and he had a kingdom. And he understood that even though that man was being crucified, there was something on the other side of that cross for that man. And he said, Lord, I just want you to remember me when this is all over. And what were Jesus' words to that thief? He said, today, today you're going to walk into glory right behind me. Why? Because the God of heaven, who said, thou shalt not steal, says to a thief caught in his sin with no way out, I'm here for people just like you. And heaven can be for people just like you. Folks, that is the good news of the gospel. It's the good news of the gospel that I hope you believe and that I hope you cling to, whether you're a thief or whether you're not. The good news of the gospel is, and I'm afraid, y'all, I'm so afraid, the more I talk to y'all and the more I'm around church people, the more I'm convinced that we say that Jesus died for sin and we, we preach that Jesus died for sin, but we really haven't been gripped by the fact that Jesus paid the ultimate price for our sin. That Jesus did not just die for sin out here in an abstract way floating in space somewhere, but Jesus died for my sin. Jesus died for the things that I've done that have hurt other people. Jesus died for the things that I have said that damage people and their image of themselves. Jesus died for the sins that I've committed in my heart against God. Jesus died for my sin and He died for your sin as well. He died for the sin that actually can be measured. When somebody steals from you or when somebody robs a TV from the electronics department at Walmart, that has a price on it. Jesus is the one who pays that price, that actual cost of our sins. The things that you cannot let go, the things that you cannot forget, the guilt that hangs over you, the shame that you carry. That is why Jesus went to the cross. So He could say to you, you can be with me in my kingdom. And you see that all throughout the Ten Commandments. Last week, I told you, I preached to you, you shall not commit adultery. And I hope you didn't this week. But when the Lord Jesus comes into the world, where do you find Him? You find Him in John chapter 8, down in the dirt with an adulterer, saying to her, I don't condemn you, go and sin no more. The Bible says, thou shalt not kill. And for my money, killing's worse than stealing. But does our God not love killers? Ask King David if he loves killers. Ask the Apostle Paul if he loves killers. 
Our God loves these people that we would judge and we would say there's no redemption for them because we hate a thief. The people we do not trust, the people that we would write off, the people that we would hold on to our wallet around, those are the people that Jesus loves. Those are the people that he came for. Those are the people that he died for. And friends, if you ever understand that, if you ever understand that the grace of God is for you, then what you'll start to understand is that our God has provided. Our God is generous. Our God can be trusted. And our God should be obeyed. Why? Because the one thing I know about the Lord Jesus is this. He won't ever rip you off. He won't ever cheat you. He may do things in your life that you wish He wouldn't, but you, when it's all said and done, you'll realize He gave me more than I ever deserved. He offered me more than I could ever offer Him. And if anybody's ripping anybody off, He's the one getting ripped off because He continues to shower me with grace and overwhelm me with goodness and surround me with mercy. Our Jesus will never hold back from you. He will never hold out on you. He will never keep any good thing from you. He that spared not His own Son for us, but delivered Him up freely for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? Which means when I get that, there's verses that Sister Destiny read in Ephesians chapter 4. Let him that stole steal no more. I'd rather let him work with his hands and actually provide something good instead of ripping everybody else off. When I lay hold of the grace of God towards me in Christ, I am freed from the lie that I've got to look out for me. I've got to take care of me. I've got to squeeze everything I can out of everybody around me to make sure I get what's coming to me. Because the grace of God means I've gotten more than was ever coming to me. I began by telling you about those two brothers. When they were branded with the ST on their forehead, the older brother was so embarrassed, so ashamed, understandably so, that he left town and disappeared. Nobody ever saw him again. Nobody heard from him. Even his own brother never knew what became of him. But the younger brother, scarred by the consequences of his own crime, took that in the mercy of God as the wake-up call that it needed to be. And he realized things have got to change. Or I'm on a path that is going to cost me everything. So he got in church, came to know the Lord, and the Lord began to transform his life as only the Lord can. In that church, he met a woman, married her. They raised a family in that church. He worked an honest job, tried to be a good neighbor, and grew to be a very, very old man in that town. And as the decades went on, people forgot about the sheep stealing. No, the world moves on. And that way of life just seemed to be something from a history book and people forgot. Until one day a stranger was visiting their town and he sat in a diner drinking his cup of coffee. And as he drank his cup of coffee, a broke down old man, hunched over by years of hard work, wearing his overalls that hadn't had their oil changed in 100,000 miles, comes in. And over his cup of coffee, the stranger looks and he notices that in the wrinkles on his forehead are two scarred letters, S-T. 
And the stranger was confused by that, understandably so. He wondered, what in the world kind of birthmark? What is that? And so he asked the waitress when she came to top off his coffee cup. He said, I see this old guy walk in here and he's got the letters ST on his forehead. What does that mean? The waitress thought for a minute, scratched her head, said, well, I don't rightly know. But I think it's the abbreviation for saint. Some of you have come into this place today and you feel like you've been branded by your guilt and by your shame. You've sinned, you've hurt others, and you've hurt yourself. You know you've dishonored God. But this book tells me that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. He can become something totally different and somebody totally new. And he can take people who have been branded by their sin and he can turn them into saints. So my invitation to you is this. If you need him to transform your life, change your heart and to give you a new start, that's what he specializes in. He died surrounded by thieves. Lived surrounded by thieves. So that he could turn those sheep thieves into saints. Now it could be today that there are some of you who are here that you are believers. You know the Lord. He's your Savior. You're trying to follow Him. But maybe this has kind of hit where you live. Maybe you do struggle with Wanting to take what doesn't belong to you. Maybe there's a real compulsive problem that you have. Friend, you need to repent of that. You need to bring it to the Lord. Not only are you going to get in big trouble, because you will get caught, but also you're going to answer for God. Answer to God for that. But I know this about all of you, because you're a sinner just like me. All of us have lived doubting God's provision and doubting God's goodness. And it would be good for some of you to come today and to express that to the Lord. To say, honestly, Lord, I'm having a hard time at this point in my life trusting that you are good and trusting that you are provide. I'm tempted, Lord, to take matters into my own hands. Lord, I'm not tempted to go to Walmart and steal the TV. But I am tempted to take control. I'm tempted, Lord, to figure it out on my own. I'm tempted, tempted to grasp and to seize. We're going to stand together today. And I'm going to invite you to come, whatever your needs might be. And say, Lord, I want you to give. I don't want to take. Lord, I want you to give me what I could not earn. Give me what I cannot grasp. Give me what only you can give. Let's sing to the Lord this morning as we respond to His Word.